So we are uh, hanging out today and we are not drinking Earl Grey tea today. We're actually drinking Earl Grey tea lattes, which is officially called a London Fog. And it's a fantastic drink for a rainy Chicago day in the spring or the fall you pick. Uh, but I love them in the afternoons. So if you haven't had one, uh, try one. We're actually drinking them from Joe's today and Joe's did a good job. So go check it out, ask him for a London Fog. But I am joined today by my friend, Professor Brian Kamerzelt who is uh, a professor with me in the communications department here at Moody and talking about uh, technology and specifically, um, so a couple things that a bunch of these people don't know uh, and people listening might not know that uh, Brian and I actually both went to the same university to get for grad school and had the same exact advisor, shout out to our friend Ben Mitchell, uh, who we shouted out to last time but lost the episode, so we're still loving you, Ben Mitchell. <laughs> Uh, but Dr. Ben Mitchell was a fantastic advisor, but we were both there at the same time, studied the same degree, had the same advisor, and missed each other by a whole year, and never knew each other existed until we both got to work here at Moody. So I'm really glad you're joining me today to talk about technology, theology, and especially Jacques Ellul. Oh, excited to be here. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. So um, you in Intro to Com spend a bunch of time talking about uh, Ellul's uh, technique, and really wrestling with uh, what technique is doing at the moment, how it's you know affecting media, how it continues to affect media, even though Alul's wrestling with it, you know, almost a hundred years ago now. Uh, he's he's saying this stuff very presciently about, uh, hey, this is what's going to keep happening. And he was um, closer to right and probably scarily right if he were here today sitting with us, although he'd be a bag of bones. So we'll just skip that. Um, but. Um, talk a little bit about where you see the state of technology, media, and technique as it sits today, because that was a lull's challenge to us. How do we live today faithfully to the Word of God, but in the society we live in? Yeah, that's a lot of questions in one. <laughs> let, me, let me ramp up a little bit to it, because uh, I will never um, pass up an opportunity to introduce students to uh, Jacques Ellul, uh, you know, a 20th century French philosopher. He would not call himself a theologian, but of the dozens of books he wrote, um, many are very theological in nature. He was a devout uh, man, a mm -hmm. faithful follower of Christ. Um, and it was through that shared mentor uh, in grad school that I was introduced to somebody who helped challenge my thinking in a way that made me understand that the way I think the way I perceive the world, uh, the way I approach problems, the way I approach my craft is all defined by a concept we loosely define as technique. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Probably the most important revelation in those studies is that there are actually other ways to think. Absolutely. Other ways to be in this world, other ways to interact with one another other than methods and means and best practices and cause and effect thinking. A lot of the dissonance I was just sort of experiencing in just my human um, interactions on earth started to be um, sort of laid bare mm. that maybe um, uh, the, the, the way in which our culture prioritizes technique, mm -hmm. our techniques, our practices, is not, not just the only way to engage, but perhaps not the best way to experience this human reality. Yeah, and, 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 and not even the historically longest way that most people would have looked at it. This is a fairly more recent way of, and, and 
in, at least in terms of technique and the way he's describing it, a more recent development in terms of how we're applying that technique more often in more places to more things. Uh, so can you, for uh, the people that are listening, that may not have a good definition of technique, which is always one of these, like we've got to make sure we get this thing clear, define our terms when we're starting. Can you define a little bit about technique for Jacques Allel and, and where he would kind of see us now based on that? Yeah, it's, it is an invasive concept because one of the principles of this area of media ecology that we love so much is that it evades perception. Sure. And one of the sort of the founding concepts is this idea of, uh, from Marshall McLuhan, another one of our media ecologists, is like we're fish that don't know they're wet. Yeah. Our culture is so much a product of technique, it evades perception and definition because you're like, well, what else is there? Mm -hmm. What do you mean there's other ways of being and thinking? And so it's important to back up and just put a little bit of context on it. So Jacques Allel, when he was writing in his book, The Technological Society, he's uh, noticing a, tr a rising trend and pattern that was still a novelty in the human experience in the 20th century. Uh, the rise of industrialization, um, the rise of methodology, uh, the rise of the sciences. Now these are all good things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Modern society is built on the ability to uh, formulate new ideas, learn from those ideas, test hypotheses, create new um, technology, and it results in our modern society. So when Alul is writing about it, he's noticing a rapid expansion in the degree to which we organize ourselves in these new ways. Mm -hmm. A modern listener might go, I don't understand what you're talking about right. because there is no world to contrast it against. Right. Alul was theorizing that technique was maybe taking up too much of our lives, and now maybe it has. So some ways, some simple ways to figure it out. <laughs> How often have you used five simple steps, seven methods to success, mm -hmm. having trouble in your relationships? Do these things and you will get the results you're looking for. Yep. Are you not creating the meaning in, in your creative work that you want? Well, what processes, techniques are you using? As if, if you're just technically better, then what you are communicating would be more meaningful. Sure. Now the human experience suggests that that is not where meaning comes from, mm -hmm. but then we find ourselves unha un unhappy, uh, dissatisfied with our lives, and we think, what do I do? What steps aren't I taking? What methods aren't I using? If I wanna have better relationships, if I wanna make better content, if I wanna um, have more success, if I wanna have more wealth, it just must be a matter of methods. Right, and if my methods can improve, then every other aspect of my life will improve. But the, the, the funny part to me in that for a lull is that the idea of even who defines what we mean by improve is still defined by a technique. Exactly right. Who's to say what success is? Right. In modern society, is not shy about saying, one, here is what success is, right. and here is how you get there. But when we actually engage in that world, we are often um, very disappointed to find out some of these techniques um, uh, don't work. Sometimes they do work and are still ultimately unfulfilling. So I, I and, and usually those are defined success or better, whatever improvement is mm -hmm. defined by uh, faster, stronger, better, uh, bigger, 
or smaller, depending on which yeah. one you're shooting for, but always more. Modern objectives, um, industrialized societies, uh, obsession with efficiencies and mass production, uh, it's definitely connected with capitalism and consumerism. If you even treat your personal lives, your most uh, deeply held and meaningful relationships as um, something you're shopping for and making lists about and uh, going through steps to successful relationships. Not that the techniques are necessarily bad, right. but the fact is if that is what you're putting your hope in, if that is the only way in which you know to engage the world, you have definitely adopted what Allah would call uh, this technological society. And as you said earlier, there is literally much more um, ancient and literally timeless ways to think about others, to think about communications, to think about relationships, and to think about society. It's not the only way uh, we have to engage. And so if you are feeling unfulfilled, dissatisfied with the modern life, you are not alone. And what Alul <laughs> no. was theorizing has sort of manifested itself in the dominant present reality of the Western world. So one of the, so I have, I have a controversial opinion. Let's see if you agree. Um, I, I've noticed that in terms of, let, let's, let's pick on art for a moment. Uh, in terms of art, we may be able to list out, you know, I'll give you a couple maybe, uh, what we would may call masters. But we, we have this period before we get to really technique and what Jacques Allah was talking about, where we have these tremendous masters, Da Vinci and Michelangelo. And my contention is that the desire for speed and efficiency has actually meant that we were going faster, but never going deeper, which is why we have no real artistic masters at this moment. Mm. Now, I'll give you a couple of exceptions. I know that people will tell me, well, what about Georgia O'Keeffe? But Georgia O'Keeffe is not an exception. She's proof. She moved to the desert and moved away from all this stuff and got <laughs> out there and hung out by herself. So she's actually proving the point, not disproving the point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you just do it then way, this way, then you will achieve uh, the work of the, of the masters of the classics who were not living in a technological society no. in the same sense. No. And you wonder, where is that richness? Where is that meaning? How am I not experiencing that? Where, why is it not in my life? Well, the uh, technique is obsessed with the measurable. And it's a, only a very narrow band of our reality that is measurable. Yeah. Um, much, much more defies measurement. Still more has yet to find its measurement. And if you're only looking at what has worked for others, what can you prove? What are your metrics? Who else is doing this? You will not only be behind because you're always following some other resource, but you're only engaging with a very narrow bandwidth of the human experience, the measurable. Sure. And, and then fundamentally, if I can measure it, then if I can measure it, I can price it. And if I can price <laughs> it, I can't make something priceless. Mm -hmm. How do I make something priceless if every part of it can be measured, if every part of it can be compartmentalized, put into a category, and then put out in a paint-by-numbers coloring book that everybody can do anytime they want, we can all be Picasso. And I do think it's why we have a generation that probably is the first to really begin to go backwards in their appreciation of uh, media artifacts that are not necessarily technologically sure. better, right. but to them they're more meaningful. I think there's already been a rejection of this, looking for meaning in things where um, in my generation, uh, one of the very first shifts was, uh, say, for example, in audio technology, music, 
we were always looking for the best format for the highest fidelity. Right. Um, MP3s were technically not a superior audio technology, but it allowed for a, a freer experience of that music. Mm-hmm. And I think beginning with steps like that, you you flash forward to meme culture and things like that where these uh, very cheaply uh, made, uh, even purposely degraded in their, um, like their JPEG fidelity, are the funnier memes, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. It's not a pursuit of polish and excellence through our technologies. It's a search for something else. Mm -hmm. It's a search for uh, something that we already know to be true. Anybody listening can do this exercise right now. If you think in your life, if you think into your room, the artifacts that mean the most to you, and you describe them, if I ask you to choose the most meaningful photo in your life, the one that you have printed, the one that you're going to save in case of fire, and I ask you to describe it to me, Hundreds and hundreds of times I've asked this question and never does anybody describe the, uh, the technology, the uh, technique of composition, the lens, the camera, what it's made out of. They describe something else, something very organic to the human experience, the nature of story and how meaning gets into our things and how meaning gets into us. There is absolutely an adverse relationship between our pursuit of technique and our ability to make things that matter. Mm-hmm. And that is in the arts. Mm-hmm. I think most, it's most easily perceived and discussed through the arts, but I think that shows up in our products. I think that shows up in our industries. I think that shows up in our sciences, um, even, which depend on technique. Well, and, and, and the challenge that I have is that that desire for speed, efficiency, let's go faster, stronger. There, we're coming to a place where uh, there may have been some things where we could say, hey, this worked for us, up to a point Mm -hmm. but now we're starting to cross that we're starting to cross this point where the efficiency the speed is too much and and so you know i've heard some people uh, you know trying to pull this back and say well so social media is to blame for a lot of the stress and anxiety and and and, you know emotional overwhelmed just everything is hard and difficult in the world and my response to them is i i think if you eliminate social media you would not eliminate the problem I totally agree. Uh, and anybody who's been alive for more than um, the last eight years uh, can uh, can tell you that a lot of these issues that we now ascri- ascribe to ascribe to yeah. social media were were not new. No. I mean, uh, we we are very complex in our humanity, but we just manifest the same anxieties over and over and over again in different ways. But there is a difference. Our techniques become our technologies. Our technologies have become such a part of our environment. And now we live in a fully, not just technological society, but we live in a fully mediated society. So one part of that technique is our technology. One part of that technology is our media. And now we live in an almost fully mediated state at all times. And that media is not passive. You used to have to be where you had to turn on a TV. Yeah. You had to go to the mall, and uh, I don't know if your listeners remember malls, but <laughs> malls were these, these places that existed before the internet where you would go to see things and where people, would, teens usually would walk around. All the people and, in the room who are over 30 are like, yeah, and all the people under 30 are like, what are you talking about? Um, you know, where did you go to try on your identities and, and, and try on new looks before social media allowed you to do it? Yeah. So you, you went to the mall, right? Yeah. Um, 
And uh, now, though, these are our complete subscription to not just a technological society, but a mediated society means it is always applying its t our techniques back on us. Those algorithms are working us over uh, all the time. Uh, McLuhan, uh, one of our founding media ecologists, you know, says that media work us over completely. Mm -hmm. They are total in their effects. And you're thinking, what does that mean? Well, think about how much, how often, and how constant these algorithms are just on you, mm -hmm. um, uh, coming at you. Whether you really want them to or not, uh, you are being receiving signals that are expressions of uh, entire industries that are applying their techniques, uh, not just for your well-being, <laughs> no. not even for your attention. Mostly for your money, I think. But for your consumption. <laughs> Right? For, they don't want you to just believe something. They want you to do something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Usually buy or just check your app, yep. watch the ad. But when you're talking about belief in action, you're not talking about consumerism or capitalism or entertainment or distraction. You're talking about propaganda. And when a, the ultimate progression of our obsession with technique in the area of communications, media, and the arts is propaganda. Mm -hmm. The idea that we are not here to just create beautiful things. We want a specific action. And the modern definition of propaganda is probably unrescuable from its negative pejorative context, and probably rightly so, post-World War II. It's to do something to the advantage of the message maker, but to the disadvantage Mm -hmm. of the message receiver. And if then you ask yourself, how much of our media qualifies as propaganda, and you don't automatically go mm, about 100%, <laughs> then right. you, are, you, do, you, do, you are not able to perceive the technological society, and you fulfill the warnings of technique that, that Alul, I think, was most worried about. Because when you talk about the sciences, that's one thing. We talk about our faith, religion, mm -hmm. our practices our families, yep. our most sacred spaces and experiences, if those are completely taken over by techniques, and those techniques include uh, technologies like media that are able to then apply those, uh, those agendas to us, then we have created a world that uh, I, I think begins to sound familiar and that we become uncomfortable with. And then back to the value of Alul's work and, other, and thinkers like them is, okay, then what other way is there to exist? Exactly. Exactly, and, and that's really the question because Alul wasn't trying to tell you, hey, uh, you're just going to stop or just hop out and go, you know, live on an island somewhere and don't pay attention to anybody else ever. Uh, and to be clear, Alul wasn't even doing that himself. I mean, Alul is the mayor of a town. He is, you know, a statesman. He is a professor who's teaching in a university. He is, he is not a let me get out of here and try and, you know, run away. Let me stop using technology. He jumped in and actually leaned in but tried to think through uh, the real question, and, and probably if I have to pick, I, I love Presence of the Kingdom, which goes really well, perfectly balanced mm -hmm. with the technological society, but how do I live faithfully in this moment? Based on my faith, how do I live faithfully in this moment with, with an understanding of the timeless nature of the scriptures in the time that I'm giving, but recognize that this time and space that I'm living in is not necessarily trying to cultivate the inner life and the kind of faith that God intended for me. Exactly right. When you are someone who uh, was in a very unique place in time, like Alal was in the mid to late 20th century, um, with the ability to perceive these other uh, ways of being um, uh, 
that uh, someone like that can really then begin to speak into the things that matter most. And again, Alal was a deep man of faith who wrote a lot of books um, that uh, are not just deeply theological in nature, I would say are overtly theology books, even yeah. though he wouldn't call himself a theologian. Uh, you mentioned The Presence of the Kingdom, highly recommended, yep. um, and another book called Subversion of Christianity. It has kind of a double meaning. One, that Christianity has been subverted mm -hmm. in its role in, in, in the world, and that Christianity should be subversive in its nature, uh, in the nature of its role in the world. And so, yeah, we don't look to him just for the existential crisis that the technological society would and should cause. I've, I've, I've assigned the technological society to a lot of students, um, and it it's a it's a very thick book by a French philosopher, and um, right. it, it'll begin to fry their brain. And but if I would point to two books in the in in on the, on the planet that have not just influenced my thinking but changed the way I think, mm -hmm. it's the Bible by a mile. Um, and I, I don't mean that just as a man of faith, but it's just true that rewires my ability to mm -hmm. think and perceive mm -hmm. the world. Uh, the Technological Society would be the distant second. And that is, that is two of two books. Because again, there is this ability to then go, well, what else is there? So we look back to that same thinker and we look at presence of the kingdom, we look at his other writing, and you realize that, that, our, that, our, that our lives as Christians in this world may, may have always been that anti-environment to the dominant cultures. And in this technological society, it might be more relevant, that, that the theology that leads us to those conclusions may be more relevant than ever. If you are looking for a way to make your faith relevant, like did God really mean for 2,000 years more history? Did he really uh, 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 know and place us in this technological society? Is, the, is this theology relevant? I think in that intersection, in that spark, which is I think one of the things that get you and I are very excited about this area of thought, why we teach this stuff, is that the answer is kind of glaringly obvious that uh, it might be more relevant to us today, might speak more clearly to us today than it could have possibly to uh, faithful men and women um, a couple hundred years ago even who just did not perceive this type of society becoming the norm mm -hmm. um, of the human experience. Well, and, and so one of the things I'd spent some time in the fall uh, just researching and thinking about was, um, so... I, I've contended in the past that Jesus is the only person who ever lived who got to choose when he showed up. Uh, he, he picked. He, you know, he could have shown up thousands of years later, thousands of years earlier. No big deal. He gets to pick. So why show up then? And he's in the middle of what would have been considered a technological, um, innovative space. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got Greek uh, culture taking over the world. You've got Roman roads that are literally spreading it out like a network. Um, so why show up there? Obviously, you mm -hmm. can say, well, okay, but he had to be the Savior and he had to be the Messiah, which was a Jewish man. Good. But then why pick uh, to come then and be born to Joseph? He could have picked any father, any, any job that father had. And yet, in the scripture, Jesus, first Joseph, and then Jesus as well, both are referred to by a term, tecton, which is a technology worker, mm. a carpenter, a craftsman, a mason, they said, aren't you Joseph's son and aren't you also a carpenter? Aren't you also a tecton, a technology worker? Jesus shows up, spends 30 years of his life working in technology that he had in his day, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and yet never, with only two exceptions that I can find, Jesus never uses technology words to describe humans 
or to describe human interaction or human relationships. So if I spend 30 years working on something and then never talk about it, even in a, in a sense of saying, here's a metaphor for you, which Jesus spends a ton of time using metaphors, mm -hmm. why does he spend all this time using metaphors and never talks technology? Yeah, it's brilliant. And I'm totally stealing all that content because um, <laughs> uh, I do love it. It's, it's a striking uh, omission. Um, and a lot, of our, a lot of what we learn, take from the Bible is about what it does and, and does not talk about. Omission is a, an important way to, to look at the, uh, the texts that are the guide for our life and practice. And it, it's, 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 it's also uh, especially um, striking in our modern society, our technological society, how often we use technological metaphors. Mm -hmm. Your brain is like a computer, right? Mm -hmm. yep, yep. Um, you, we are a cog in a machine. Um, we are, uh, our, our psychology, our chemistry is all dials that need to be up and down. Like we are a living machine. Uh, no, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. Not at all. And we look at the way Christ spoke and he did. He had all of the technological metaphors, you know, it's like a carpenter or it's like a stone. No, but it's not like a table and it's not like a hammer and it's not like a nail and it's not like a why didn't he say we were built like he didn't call us even houses which are constructions no no, no process no no process metaphors in that regard um we are not our technologies we are not our uh we are not the method now we are a workmanship Mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. We are created. Mm -hmm. uh, there are other metaphors and Absolutely. I won't, I won't take, take your language, but um, I want to turn it back to you to t talk about uh, the organic language that, that is there instead. Yeah. Well, and, and the question that gets asked for me is, well, then when did he use technological metaphors to describe something? And fascinatingly, the only times I can find that I could even come close to calling them technology would be um, the whitewashed tombs that he called the Pharisees, which are not naturally existing things. They're carved out of a place and used, so they're used for another purpose than they were originally intended and they're man-made. And then bowls, which he used to describe the Pharisees uh, as people who washed the outside of the cup and the bowl and didn't wash the inside. So in both cases, he's referring to people who do practices which are fundamentally removing the soul of what they're doing and what they're after. He's taking the passion out of it and saying, basically, you're just people who live in process. Yeah, he even goes further. And he, you know, he really takes some shots at precision, exactitude, um, legalism. Um, you know, if you want to be holy, you need to divide up even your mint and cumin. Like, uh, he's not a big fan of that way of organizing the world. Right. And um, in that sense, I think there's a lot of reasons why the early church was considered uh, both atheists and anarchists. Yeah. Uh, the order of the world, and yes, Rome in that time and space is very important. Um, that was a very peak moment in an empire and their, their techniques of control. You know, modern society did not invent technique. We've just sort of been completely taken by them. Yeah. And I think there is a time and place. I think it's brilliant to bring that up because there is a time and place, time and times and places in history that allow us to contrast which way we want to go in the human experience. And if you go back too much further, we don't have enough record. Right. Uh, if you go much too much forward, we got too much media. <laughs> but if you go right about there, yeah. you have the, the, the transition from predominantly oral tradition, mm -hmm. um, the richest, most defined culture probably uh, the planet has ever seen and will ever see in the Jewish people. Um, and then you have an explosion of meaning out of that places. Mm -hmm. And so what you have is an ultimate exemplification of how meaning is made. And it's not a matter of technique 
and modern practices of the modern world. It's, almost, it's just never reached for. All right. Well, and, and Jesus, what he is reaching for and using on a regular basis is organic metaphors. He's, he's talking like, hey, you have more in common with a tree or a plant or a flower. You, you consider the flowers. They don't worry about what they're going to wear. You are like the flowers. You are like the trees. You are like sheep. You are these organic metaphors that God designed, not humans, to be clear. And in that process, God designed well enough to help you understand yourselves based on other things. And when you start understanding, like even, and I spent a ton of time talking about trees, but like just trees and how they relate to one another, how they're intermingled with one another, how they serve and help one another. You think of trees and we think, well, that, that's just, you know, they're just organic living things that grow because they get sunlight and water. And that's true, but they're also connected to one another. They're also helping one another. They're also, um, in, in many ways, serving younger versions of trees. And even in their deaths, they are literally creating life for other things. So there's this ongoing set of organic metaphors that Jesus is referencing mm -hmm. that are much more powerful than simply saying, you're more like a computer or a car. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that kind of basically says, and, and this is one of the problems I have with a lot of other discussions when we're talking about using technological metaphors is that we have this sense, if I just fix this piece, everything will get better. And it's like all the pieces are connected. I don't think mm -hmm. you can pull this thing apart. Yeah, our metaphor is a not just a powerful teaching tool, but um, if you go back to a basic concept of our, our language, ma our words matter, our words shape our reality. And we reach to metaphors over and over and over again to help us make sense of the world. And if you say you are like a computer, you will then begin to act as if that is a real thing and a true thing. And those leads to techniques and practices that are ultimately unfulfilling because it misunderstands the human condition. We also replace our metaphors, vine and branches, mm -hmm. right? Yet we want to update our metaphors and say, oh, no, we're just sort of making it more modern. But that's not how language works. That's not how culture works. It's not how our techniques work. Yep. Our language matters. And we've been, the language we've been given has been not just um, uh, codified for us, but it was modeled for us in an oral tradition. Like, how could that much meaning be stored in a parable? Uh, I've written a lot of things, but I don't think you could fill a library with books about anything I've said. <laughs> but Jesus says a simple parable with, with, with simple connectivity, and we can fill libraries trying to get at that meaning. At the layers in it, yeah, for mm -hmm. sure. And because there is more to it than just, just this, well, the surface, there's a man and he has two sons. Like, there's, you're the man, there's the son, mm -hmm. this is heaven. There's, but then we can keep going on multiple levels mm -hmm. and layers, and yet... When we use this kind of language to describe ourselves and we recognize that it does have consequences because language always does, then we start to, to start thinking through the stress and anxiety and the overwhelmed sense of feeling like, well, that I'm not operating. I've heard people say I'm not operating at an optimal level yeah. and I'm kind of like, what does that mean? I don't have enough bandwidth. Right. Uh, yes. I'm checking my meters. I use the same language. I used it the other day about my current bandwidth and I'm redlining and, <laughs> and then I'm like, no, that is not how I want to consider my energy and my capacity for other people. That's not the language that I've been given. That is not the life that was modeled for me. And I do not want to be a product of techniques that I have had had no hand in shaping. I want to put techniques and technology in my employ. Sure. But I do not want them acting on me without my awareness of them. And I do think Christ is that ultimate example of medium and metaphor and message all in one. Uh, I don't think the scriptures are shy or silent about that lived reality. 
And when I put my, my um, attention, my energy, and then ultimately my identity in that example, I begin to really begin to connect the dots of the other ways of being that are the anti-environment to the world that uh, we have created. Um, that maybe the church and maybe the Christian life is not a matter of techniques and best practices. Sure. Maybe revival doesn't tarry because we just didn't do it right with the eloquence of our oration. Uh, maybe you're unfulfilled because everything you do is ends and means thinking. If you do this, then you will get this result. If you didn't get that result, you messed it up. Right. You didn't do it right. Do better. And so then thinking, if we're going to, because the other thing we have to acknowledge is that Alul is actually a French uh, freedom fighter against yeah. the Nazis. <laughs> rock so he's, and roll. He's, he's not exactly, yeah, he is very rock and roll. Like, not exactly like, oh yeah, he's totally fine. He's a nice guy. Old professor, whatever. Like, no, he's killing Nazis probably. So, and he's fighting for his country because he believes in freedom and he does not believe in the totalitarian, you know, authoritative dictatorship of somebody like Hitler. Mm -hmm. So he's not this like, oh, he's a nice, calm, like, no, let's go. I can kind of picture him with a machine gun. But um, he always has a punk rock theme, theme track when I'm to, thinking to of you. picturing him yeah. in his life, you yeah. know, because uh, he does write a little bit furious. And you're thinking, yeah, when he's seen the ultimate of technique propaganda used to the ends that yeah. the Third Reich did, when he's seen industrialization create like the, the little, the, the hell and horror of World War II, when you're seeing um, what's coming, all those techniques and technologies then get brought back to modern Western consumer society, and you're like, is this it? Is this the world we're going to make? Incidentally, this is also where uh, Lord of the Rings was written. This yep. is also this era that formed these little, you know, these, we see them as old white-haired men as in, the, in their later memorialization, but they were, these ideas, these concepts were hardened out when they were young men experiencing a dissonance, a contrast that they were fighting against, mm -hmm. saying, no, not this world. Yep. something else. That's why Presence of the Kingdom and Subversion of Christianity are two good recommendations uh, beyond the Technological Society. Technological Society is this thick and it will fry your, your life. Uh, the other two are probably as thin as books, so at least there's some relief there. Yeah, although it did take me a whole summer because I reread it like three times. It was just that good. <laughs> but um, So then for a lull, who is obviously, I'm not afraid to be anti-technology and anti-authoritarian, mm -hmm. um, if Lowell was sitting here with us right now, what would be some things that you think he, and, and I'll give you some suggestions that I think, but uh, he would be telling us, here's some things you guys need to do hmm. to, to actually start thinking about what this means to live faithfully. And, and maybe not necessarily, there may not all be super practical, like put your phone away and whatever. I mean, there's a tendency to want to do that. Look at them all. But, Look at them all. Yeah, I, I know. I can see them all. They're all on their phone taking pictures of us and talking and posting. Oh, they're, very, they're fully engaged. Sure, sure. They're totally with yeah. us. The algorithm all, doesn't have, all with doesn't have a all, grip on they them They all at got all. it. They're totally fine. Yeah, yeah. Their social anxiety. It's all, all pop-up notifications. Yeah, they're, and right now they're all like, wait, you're the pop-up notification. Yeah. Okay, sure. That's fine. You're looking up books. Okay. <laughs> now, Caleb, I believe. And all of a sudden we're all on Amazon buying a book and yeah. it just worked all over again. Okay. Okay. Um, but one of the things that I... Uh, I've actually started thinking through is what are the, the, the hobbies that people used to engage in that forced them to slow down to a ridiculous pace? Mm. That almost, I'm trying to, the anti, the over, the this is stupid, you're wasting too much time moment of, um, hey, you know what, uh, fishing, 
I didn't catch anything, but it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I sat out there for five hours and did nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, naps. Love yeah. naps. Yeah. Right? Right? Let's do, <laughs> what? Knitting? Yeah, whatever somebody, I almost feel like I want to find hobbies that people look at and go, you're just wasting your time. And I'm like, now we're on to something. Mm-hmm. The control of time is one of those fundamental ideas of the, uh, of the basics of technique, right? We invent the clock and then we run our lives by them. Yeah, oh boy. So, uh, <laughs> let's bring out punk rock cameras out and so, see what he does for us. Yeah, uh, so I subscribe to a political philosophy called Christian Anarchy, and Jacques Lull was a Christian anarchist. He wrote a book on anarchy, and um, Christian anarchy is different. Christian anarchy is not anarchy as in lawlessness, but it is a Christian ethic uh, that has it puts its hope in the local. Uh, organic church, not in governments, in politics, in institutions. It is defined by a deep suspicion of any consolidation of power, right? So, I mean, anybody starts to gather too much. Nope, I'm already suspicious. I'm already out. And again, early churches, early Christians were considered atheists and anarchists. And so I don't want to just use punk rock anarchy um, illustrations and not kind of be serious about um, that, but I'm also a good Protestant. Um, I, I am a child of the Protestant Reformation. Operative words being protest and reform. That's pretty punk rock. Like uh, <laughs> protest, reform, uh, atheists, and anarchists. That's the early church. That's that's part of our heritage. Um, Diet of uh, Worms does sound like a punk rock album. I'm right? just saying. Right, and so. Um, one of the things we talk about in one of my classes is, is a, a concept, one of many I've uh, uh, borrowed, let's say, not stolen from a lull, <laughs> and that is uh, ministry media or meaningful communication as a desacralizing force. Mm. That we've created a lot of our own um, definitions of the world, and we've tried to duplicate them into spaces that they don't belong. Mm. And so when you, to, 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 uh, to circle back to your question, in that context of, of, of deconstructing control systems and um, uh, perceiving these environments, um, and what can you do to then begin to practice a life uh, beyond the boundaries of technique, um, we, we might not want the Christian life and practice, or more, uh, more specifically the church, to look just like the entertainment or political practices of the world, right? We want to begin to um, develop and disciple more timeless ways of being. And so that's why you always come back to this language of the anti-environment. And it's very possible the church should be that anti-environment of the world. Where do I go that's not uh, like everything else. Right now, I can't say my church is that. Mm-hmm. My church re- represents the techniques, the presentation, the entertainment, the screens, the rows, the lights, that any concert, any theater, even my home entertainment system would just sort of represent. And, and, and I, I think that if we look at most churches, mm-hmm. we would probably say, yeah, that's, that's pretty much what we would expect right now. Yeah. So we, we would then need to begin, in our, to begin if, we, again, if we can't find them in the church, we would then begin to pursue these anti-environments. So what, in a world of so much busyness, of so much technology, what is my first step to then live differently? And that's where I think some of your examples come from. Um, contrast that with 
natural environments, uh, wasting time, um, developing yourself without any end in mind. One of our most talented artists to come to the program ever um, was always frustrated because he had a lot of interests, uh, but as soon as people found out what he could do with, with art, that's all they saw. Mm -hmm. and they, made a, they made a big deal out of him. They made a celebrity out of his art and his artistry, and it is mind-blowing. And uh, so one of our directed studies was a, the a theological study in this concept. And one of the things he did for the first time in his adult life was create art in a book that nobody saw, <laughs> that it wasn't for anybody. Yep. It didn't matter if it was good. Yep. There was no rubric, no evaluation. He did it as because that is the way he connects himself to who God made him to be. That is, his, that is very much a part of his worship time, his devotional time. It is how he processes what he's getting out of the word. And I never even saw it. I gave him a grade in it because I believed <laughs> he did it. He didn't have anything more to prove in his technique, but he needed a new relationship with his gifts in order to find a balance in this life that has been increasingly escaping him. Mm. And I would recommend, no matter what that is for you, to find a way to reclaim those things. Do it just to do it. Who cares if you're good? Right. Who cares if there's a grid or an evaluation? Who cares if it's popular? Who cares what sells? Who cares what some other person scored? It doesn't have to matter all the time. Correct. This pressure to get it right, to fit in, to succeed, to meet other people's metrics is a cult of technique. Yeah, and, and so I've been wrestling with another um, component of this because I think one of the ways that uh, I think technique hides the best is in the concept of convergence. Mm. The notion that we had multiple, we used to have multiple devices do what we have a phone do now. We used to have multiple things do what we only have one thing do now. Mm. And in the process, we start to not be able to know how to relate to that thing. Um, like, is it a phone? Well, if I ask most of you in this room how often you use it as an actual phone, you'd probably say not very often. So why do we still call it a phone? You use it for a text message, you use it for email, you use it for going to find a coffee shop, you use it for maps, you use it for all kinds of stuff except phones. But when it does that, yeah, we don't know what it is, so it's everything. Mm -hmm. And in the process, that confuses us and we're not sure. So I've actually been trying a test this last year um, in divergence. Mm. I split up what I wanted each device to do to only do one or two things for me. So they don't do all the other things that I expect. I don't have email on my phone. Like if you email me, you, I'm never gonna see it on my phone. And I don't have any notifications either. So nothing dings, nothing goes off. I just, no. got, I just got choked up thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. But see, my point is like, then I, but it's on my laptop. So I can go back to my laptop and look at my email. It's not like I can't get to it. It just is there. And the best part is I can leave it. I can leave my email behind and go, hey, it's fine, it's waiting for me when I get back. I don't have to take it with me everywhere. And by the way, I don't have to be tracked on every app that's out there. Mm -hmm. I've also tried a thing that you, I would just take a shot, see what happens. Um, I realized that all of, okay, so all of you have apps on your phones or devices or whatever, okay. You have to take care and update them all, yes? Which means technically, just to be clear, you have a new app every time it updates. So if you don't use that app every day, why do you keep it on your phone? What if you literally, and I do this, every Sunday I go to Chipotle 
You're like, for real? Yes, every Sunday. It's happening again Sunday. My kids count on it. Like money in the bank. We're going to Chipotle. It closed the other day for Easter, and they were like, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. I'm like, it's okay. We'll go tomorrow. Every week, I download the Chipotle app. I open it up. I sign in. I take my points, and then I delete it. And you're like, wait, why? Because all of the apps are temporary. Why do I need to keep it on my phone, let it track me, let it tell me, let it ding, let it do whatever? I don't have to. Just delete them all and then re-download them whenever you want. Who cares? Why? Because technically, every time you updated, you did the same thing. Mm -hmm. What happens if, and all of you are going to freak out, so please don't. I'm serious. There's no apps on my phone. There's nothing. And you're like, what the heck does that thing do? It sends me text messages from my family, and I actually make phone calls. Wait, it does what? It just sends me text messages and phone calls. Nothing else. No Instagram, no email, no nothing else. And guess what? My phone is super boring. (laughs) Which, by the way, has made all of you way more interesting. Why? Because there's <laughs> nothing on here that's as good as what's sitting out there. Now, just to be clear, for those who are listening on the radio, he's not, <laughs> he only doesn't have one app on his phone because no. he's old. Yes. It's because he did, and he's made uh, intelligent decisions on how he wants to coexist in the world we've made, that he wants to be more present, that uh, we all lived through the, I mean, it's only been like five to eight years, depending on how rich you were, uh, that you first had that experience where you're trying to have a conversation and someone lifts their phone up while you're trying to... That never happened in human, human society until very recently. No. The idea that you'd be talking to somebody and they like walk over to the wall while they're looking at you and like take the phone Pick up the, the phone and call someone and while they're talking. dialing. Like, like, are you okay? That would be so inappropriate. I, at that point, I think they think I'm crazy. They're calling the yeah. cops to come get me. And now we're watching people just do that or... We um, cannot escape those notifications. Those apps also know when the other app has notified you and they'll wait for their moment to make sure that you're never free. Or let's get more contextual. A lot of our listeners will have gone through youth group culture during the era of social media. And look, I can imagine a lot of horrible experiences, but I cannot imagine one more horrible than middle school with Instagram. Like that just No, I'm sounds... so glad that so much of my life can't be found online. I that just so much sounds trouble. like a absolute living nightmare. And so <laughs> we're not actually um, unaware of this, but here's what, here's what actually happens. Students live in that nightmare. Everybody laughs and the room laughs a little bit because they agree. And then we go, hey, let's have youth group night and talk to those students. We're concerned about their social media uh, exposure. And then we have youth group nights all about how Instagram might not be good for your sense of self-image or the quality of content that you're engaging in. Has everybody had this sort of this event in your youth group culture? Probably. But what do we do at the end of it? Well, hey, we have an Instagram account for our youth group. Please, <laughs> and you got invited here tonight. Yes, Buy please, it. Please like and subscribe. If you want to know what's going on, follow us on Instagram, which puts your youth right in the same ecosystem with which that you are saying is probably not good for them. Now, it's easy to pick on the middle school students, but the same techniques are used on every demographic. And if you wonder, is it true? Look at what's happening to old folks in politics and Facebook. They're not necessarily living in reality either. No. 
And can they delete it? Will they delete it? Will they choose to live without it? Probably not, simply because some of them are finding ways, and this is key, they're seeing it as the place they go for community. Instead of seeing it as a support mechanism and communication, they're seeing it as a primary way to engage throughout the week, and to lose it would be to lose my friends, and my response has been to them, you know there's these things called coffee shops, you could just go meet people and actually talk to them. Wouldn't yeah. that be crazy? Could you, you remember back before all this where you would just like be alone in a coffee shop or a room without devices and it wouldn't be weird? Wait, how old are we? Right? right. Um, now, there are uh, a lot of reasons, there's not enough resources out there, but I would suggest that then as we turn towards the practical, this is not just something for the youth. This is absolutely something for people of all ages, yep. where maybe discipleship, maybe leadership looks like leading people into these, uh, these counter uh, experiences, these anti-environments, uh, to, to grow them in their ability, their capacity to exist in different ways, to, like fish who do not know they're wet, to pull them out of the water. Yeah. There's a, a book I want to plug. Is your, Kat, is your book available? There's a, what, Kat, what is the title of your book? Surrendering Social Media to Jesus. There is uh, a need to surrender our dominant ways of doing for a better way of doing. Yep. We, there's there's, there's uh, a need to surrender the relationships we're having in these technological environments for something else. And that has been modeled for us. A new generation of theologians are writing resources with which to help people walk through these steps. Because I will not suggest to you that it's easy. But you are going to have to make hard choices. Because never have I had this conversation or turned somebody to, into, to, onto Alul's writing and have them think, oh, this is good. I, want, I would like to perceive a world, a way of being beyond the, te the, the technological. Um, where do I begin? And we give people basic steps, and then I ask them in a couple of weeks, and oh, yeah, no, I didn't do any of that, right? <laughs> I'm not actually going to delete Wait, my you house. You want me to delete something? I'm not actually going that. to uh, change my church experience. I'm not actually going to lead my youth group in a different way. Right. Uh, I'm not actually going to delete our church's social media. I'm not actually going to put signal jammers in the sanctuary. I'm not actually <laughs> going to hide the technology. I'm not actually uh, going to disciple people back into interpersonal relationships uh, beyond their anxiety disorders uh, because the church needs to be that physically present counter cultural reality and nothing is more countercultural than the human right now right now yeah for sure so with that in mind and thinking very practically we uh, have said we will take some time out to actually take questions so do people in the room because we'd love to talk to humans and not just talk into technological devices but to talk to people sitting in the room uh, do we have questions from the yes Caleb so earlier in the Yes. Um, my question is, could that be the fact that those things are man-made and those things are, as you can say, as like I've said in some of my papers, um, modifying nature instead of, because the things that Christ talks about are more to do with creation and what God's made. Right. 
I wish everybody could have heard that. Uh, yeah. So for, for radio etiquette, one, uh, Caleb is one of our future scholars. He's a scholar. He's a future probably professor. And he's already talking like professors, quoting his own papers. <laughs> and uh, I do it all the time. I quote myself all the time. Like I said in something I wrote one time. So well done. Um, uh, Caleb, let me, don't let me misparaphrase you, but maybe Christ didn't use the technical metaphor because those things are man-made. And... But, so, what was your second part of that? Uh, so, like, I guess I answered my... <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. With your own quote, but what do you... Like, being modified nature and how it relates to, you know, what Christ taught. Well, that's, so... so. And relating that to today's yeah, and the question, uh, so what did Christ actually teach and what was he trying to get at there and, and in terms of modified nature? And let me be clear, I'm, we're not saying that, that God hasn't clearly and specifically uh, shown examples throughout the scripture where we do modify nature for good use and where God even in moments does technology himself. Um, for instance, uh, God lays out the plans for the ark. Uh, Noah has no idea how to build this thing. No one's even seen rain. How do you build a boat? So God is actually helping and, and does multiple other times and spaces. For instance, I made the joke, and, but, but not totally a joke, that you know, Adam and Eve actually create the first technology when they basically sew fig leaves together, try and cover themselves, which actually serve as terrible ways to cover yourself when whatever you're wearing is going to turn into dust within the next like month. Like, it's pretty much like there's going to be a lot of sewing fig leaves if we're going to keep this up. So God, in essence, does the first technological upgrade in giving them animal skins to make it work. So God's not necessarily against modifying nature to help man. What I have argued, in essence, is that Jesus, both in using those references, because he's actually talking about describing us. Jesus used tools mm -hmm. himself, mm -hmm. but he didn't describe people that way. And he didn't describe the nature of our souls and he didn't describe the nature of our relationships in terms that were technological because he knew that the way God designed those initial, the thing that gets me and just makes me laugh all the time is, what if he made vines just to say that metaphor in John 15? Like what if at the beginning of the, he's like, I'm gonna make vines just so a couple thousand years later I can explain to you guys, this is what's going on. The hard-coded practices of working a vineyard now makes sense for all time. And yeah, if we get sort of um, rooted in biblical um, in these metaphors, our, our, our early job was gardeners, you know? We're, we're a bunch of nudist gardeners, and gardening <laughs> uh, was absolutely... You're gonna quote him on that somewhere, uh, right? Somebody please post that to social media, look, that's amazing. It's already on there now, okay, good, um, thanks. I am. I am not inserting anything. Uh, I know you, you're not. I just you love the way up, you, you said it. You brought up the fig I did. Thing. That's fine. But is that gardening uh, a practice that uh, you learn techniques and best practices and ways of doing to better cultivate and create diversity? That, that's not what we're getting at. It's, it's, it's what um, Professor Pettit said so eloquently. It's that is not, does not become our metaphor for who we are or even God's relationship to us. We are his workmanship. We have been created to do good works. We want to do well and be technically excellent. But these are things that we employ 
um, in our work in the world. That is not who we are. Correct. That is not where our identity right. is. Correct. If you never are able to do anything effectively in your life, Caleb, that does not change who you are to God. Correct. If you are never able to learn the techniques of, of literacy in reading, in language, in the theology, in scholarship, that does not limit you from your ability to have a relationship with Christ. Correct. Yeah, and, and, and he wouldn't want that he wouldn't want us thinking in terms of our pragmatic capacity to do something for him as a way to, because that's going to go up and down over time. That's going to change based on who we are and where we're from. And there doesn't seem to be anything in the scriptures that's trying to ground it in that. It's grounded in, you are my children in whom I'm well pleased. You are uh, the fruit that is the first fruits of Christ. Christ is the first. There's all these lines in there that are really organic things because he's trying to say, hey, this thing that I've made you to be, I made you to be it, not you. Which is what technology is. It's stuff we made it to be, not what he made. So when entropy sets in and you find yourself broken down by the world, needing advice, needing counsel, and you go to your, the, the, the sources of what you believe, your pastors, uh, your, your mentors, your leaders, and you say, I'm having a hard time, do they point you to your living relationship and interrelationships in God? Or do you say, well, are you following the seven steps we talked about? Seven habits of highly effective people. Did, what did you did get you, there? What did you do or say exactly? Have you tried this? Have you tried that? That is replacing relationship with technique. Now again, lots of room for good interpersonal coaching and just being better at life. But your, your, your worth is not in your uh, ability to perceive or coexist in the technological society. Now, Alal doesn't quite get there in his book, but he will wake you up till you don't have to live uh, imprisoned by the world we made for ourselves. Absolutely. More questions. All right, wait, we got to make oh. sure we have time. Okay, oh. we've got- Oh yeah, we're on we're, radio. We're on, we're on, yes, we, we sort of. are on the radio. Oh wait, we already talked all of our time. Amazing how the two of us can do that. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us here live today. And if you have questions, you can post them to profpedit at gmail.com. And as always, check out and you can listen to and subscribe to Alul's Cafe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Have a great afternoon.